to our social landscape, I am J.R. Woodward. Joining me is health and science journalist Chelsea Conaboy, whose 2022 book, Mother Brain, garnered both public praise and critical acclaim for upending our narrow and wholly incomplete notion of who can and should care for children. She condensed her arguments into a relatively short op-ed for the New York Times titled, Maternal Instinct is a Myth that Men Created, and That's Where the Rubber Meets the Road. Upon reflection, I realized I was captivated immediately by this because sociology, at its heart, is a debunking science. I'll scold my students if they answer questions by saying, well, that's how it's always been, or because it's tradition, and I say, no, 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 we have to do better than that, we have to dig deeper. Where do these ideas come from? Who do they help? Who do they hurt? So a book, particularly a really well-written one, that questions the maternal instinct narrative, hell yes. As it turns out, the provocative title of the op-ed really shouldn't be that controversial. The research discussed in Mother Brain suggests that a deep connecting bond to a child is not only available to the gestational parent, but to fathers, adopted parents, step-parents, etc. The rub is that only gestational mothers are burdened with the social, political, economic, and cultural expectations that serve to define their identity as women. In the interview, we discussed the mechanisms that brought the concept of maternal instinct into our current lexicon, starting with Judeo-Christian religion, to Darwin, to the psychologists of the early 1900s. And, each in their own way, they use the ability to birth children as a mechanism of social differentiation and, importantly, social control. We conclude with some ideas on how we can change this narrative to better serve society, not just moms. And we begin with a quick recap of her bio. Sure. I mean, uh, so I am uh, a health and science journalist. I've I've been in newspapers for most of my career, and uh, I became a freelancer in 2017 when my um, second child was born. And this science of of the maternal brain, of the parental brain, really captured my attention when I became a mother, because I was myself looking for an explanation of what I was going through and what I was feeling at that time. And this like sense that my, my sense of self had changed in ways that I wasn't prepared for. So I um, really started digging into that. And that became this book. Yeah, started doing your research. Last so last night, I got to start with this anecdote. Um, Tuesday nights, we would go to this Mexican restaurant here in Jacksonville Beach for years, Tuesday, Taco Tuesday, you know, some margaritas, small group of us that we've been doing it for a long time. And um, I had your article for, for the opinion piece in the New York Times, uh, Maternal Instinct is a Myth that Men Created, because I was, it was just on the ground next to my wallet and my keys. I was going to give it to one of my fellow revelers. And uh, a retired older couple walked out. We see him there every week and um, just always say hi to him and whatnot, but they come and go. And as they were walking by, the woman just started yelling, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. And I was like, what is she talking about? And I look and she's looking down at the article, the title of the article. And so uh, I said, no, you don't, you don't think so? And she said, uh, I wrote this down. She said, no, it's real. It comes from God. It's instinctual. And the husband's like, well, what are you talking about? And so she reads the title of the article and he says, well, I know I don't have it. That's for sure. And she says, and you shouldn't. And uh, I said, so you don't, you think it's just, just comes from God. It's just there. And then she said, uh, well, obviously she's not a mother. And then, you know, this kind of left. So I was t- telling my friend, I'm like, man, we, I have to start with this tomorrow in the interview. Cause it was almost like she'd like got to the meat of half your book in like three sentences. So um, I'm guessing that's not the first time you have heard 
you know, some kind of response like that. So far from it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, imagine it'd be pretty common because so, it's provo- yeah. a provocative title. Yeah. Um, so what would you say? So how do we come up with this term maternal instinct, um, particularly as something set aside from just traditional sexist notions? Yeah. So um, I guess first I want to say I, <laughs> I, the, the, there is something that is special about being a mother and about being a parent and we are transformed by it. Um, we go through these really dramatic neurobiological changes that help us to develop this connection with our children and this kind of thing that could be called parental intuition. That is very real. That is the entire subject of my book is, is how we become connected to our children. Um, and so I'm not saying that uh, there are not maternal or parental behaviors or that that connection Um, that special kind of connection doesn't exist. What I am saying is that we have been told that that thing we feel is maternal instinct and that it is something that was innate in us from birth and that it happens automatically and that it is distinctly female. Mm. And we've been told that all of that is grounded in scientific knowledge and none of those things are true. <laughs> so when I started writing this book, I, I really, you know, I, I was focused on on the maternal brain research that um, has come out in the last 20 years or so. And I found so much comfort and self-identification in that in that science. <laughs> and I kept I kept asking, you know, why aren't we talking about this? Why wasn't this like part of my prenatal education? Why isn't it part of the cultural conversation around parenthood? And I kept coming up against this idea that we have a different story, right? That is Mm -hmm. pervasive and ingrained in our culture. And that is the idea of maternal instinct. So I started tracing that, that idea back in history and found that it, you know, it is really an idea that was, rooted in in religious and moral ideas about motherhood and about what a woman is, which um, your friend from the restaurant, I think, demonstrated quite clearly. Sure, sure. Um, and and then in the, you know, the early part of the 20th century, those ideas were written into scientific theory describing human instincts and human behavior. Okay. So the religion piece you're thinking of the uh, what you write about with Eve, and Mary? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in, in, in Western religion and Christianity, um, it, yeah, it comes from, we have these, these models of womanhood and, and Eve and the Virgin Mary, um, that are really about, um, I describe them as sort of like the carrot and the stick in the book to shape mm-hmm. our behavior that we're like the threat. Eve is the threat and, and Mary is like the, the one we should aspire to be. And, you know, Mary is her entire story. Um, and I should say, like, Mary has been like an important figure in my life and in my family's life. I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. anymore, but there, I do have like sort of a reverence for her story. Um, but I also know that her actual, like, what her story could be is, completely subsumed by kind of like the glory of her motherhood. Um, You know, that is what women were designed to be, you know, Mm -hmm. and within Christianity and, Mm -hmm. and 
even within that, over the ages, you know, through through early human recorded history, women were, you know, their motherhood was central, but it also wasn't kind of the only thing that the only role that they performed in public life. I, I quote researchers in, in the book who have studied early women's roles in in ancient Israel and and in the colonies and in, in America and talk about how they were uh, they they were responsible for aspects of religious life and education and um, maintaining the the homestead and even politics or standing in sometimes for their their husbands as as deputy husbands mm-hmm. and so they had this really like robust public life that included and centered motherhood but not only that. Okay. Well, that leads us into the uh, the Industrial Revolution then that yeah. leads us into science. But I wanted to point out your quote. Um, I just liked how you were that Mary's story combined with Eve's unattainable goodness, perpetual servitude. That's that's, that's kind of a forward way to put it uh, just yeah. right. So with the Industrial Revolution then, um, and there's a joke in sociology um, that Industrial Revolution is so important to our field because um, – you know, what we study in sociology, people have talked about forever. They just didn't call it sociology. Mm -hmm. So the development of the field starts with industrial revolution and people Mm -hmm. starting to say, how is this going to make an impact on our lives? And the joke is uh, on any exam, if you don't know the answer, just put industrial revolution. It doesn't matter matter what the class is or what the question is. You just have the best chance of getting it right. So that's how important it is to us. So what did the, what role happens there? I think that's that's start, you're starting to touch on that where now that robust public life starts to get shift shifted because yeah. of capitalism and these new economic yeah. forms and whatnot. So could you yeah, yeah. So this that? will be a familiar story to you that that you know it, in the industrial revolution really separated um, the the spheres of of public life and home life and um, public life was you know the domain of men who were on this you know, climbing the ladder to, to be a self-made man. And, and, um, and the home life was really the, the um, sphere of, of women who, as they saw their public roles shrink, uh, this like idea of them as like the moral representative of the family, the angel of the house mm-hmm. really inflated and um, became kind of the all encompassing identity, I guess, yeah. for, for women. And, and to be clear, this was the framework in which uh, white, relatively well-off women were operating, but it was held out as the, because the people yeah. who were immigrants or, or people of color, um, or including who were mothers themselves, they didn't have, they weren't able to, to stay in their home. They were working in, in white women's homes, doing the task of cleaning the floors and making their clothes and and often raising their children that allowed them to allow those women of angels of the house to like really em- fully embrace and try to represent this ideal of motherhood. So mm-hmm. it, it, but it held that ideal out for, you know, a driver of gender roles across society. Yeah. Let me, if you don't mind, just a quick passage of yours, uh, but then the science, but you write the enlightenment 
and the gendered science it produced had already laid the groundwork for such a separation of spheres. Children were newly recognized as children. Um, they required love and nurturing to which women were thought to be naturally suited. Um, men and women were different. Women were the source of morality and stability um, linked to predictable cycles of fertility and motherhood was the core to their being. Uh, so same with you said, men, the public sphere. Why did it why did it happen that way specifically? Was it because the religion had just blended in to the industrial revolution and the science, or was there another mechanism? Do you think that uh, that made this made this be the case? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I have a full answer to that. I think it was probably various forces. I mean, if er, early on. A lot of women did go to work, yeah. um, and you know there was this migration to to the cities for, for jobs, including by single single women and and um, married women and widows uh, to to take up those jobs. Um, and over time, there there were changes to the labor laws that really pushed those women back out of those factories yeah. um, and and created the idea of a family wage. You know, the unions fought for a family wage so that they could, um, the men could provide for their women and children at home. Um, protections were put in place that ostensibly were to, to protect w- workers, but then women specifically because they were more fragile. And it was thought that women of childbearing age put themselves at risk often in, mm-hmm. in factories. And so these, these laws that were introduced to, to protect them also made them much less attractive to their employers to, to, uh, to, you know, hire as workers. And, um, so I think that there was both this probably natural progression of society that created that separation of, mm-hmm. of home and, and public life. And then there were also, um, these very deliberate laws and, and societal norms that were introduced to kind of codify that separation. Yeah, yeah I assume as they became less exploitable, then the mm-hmm. new, new laws yeah. had, to, had to come in. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to the the science, your work, your discussion of, uh, say, Darwin and and Spencer and a few others, because um, you would think that the science would would upend the religious views and you would mm-hmm. end up in a different spot than we ended up with, right? Right. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what the Darwinian feminists, you know, held on to. So, so Darwin really, um, as you said, like he, he tore down this idea that, that we um, were created in, in God's image in the sense at whole, at least, you know, that he, he, he showed this demonstrated that we are part of come from other species and therefore the, the feminists who, um, were contemporaries to him saw that and said, <laughs> rejoiced in it, I guess, said like, mm-hmm. we're, we're freed from these models of, of the temptress and the, and the mother. And we can actually use the science to examine our own nature, to answer the questions that are like at the heart of our own lives. And the trouble with that was that, um, two things, I guess. First, you know, Darwin introduced in, in his work ideas that really, preserved this separation of of the sexes and uh and the idea that men are are uh inherently more evolved i guess than than women and this is you know in the in the idea that um women specifically are are made to take care of one another and men specifically are made to compete mm-hmm. and because competition is such a, a central um, idea in his thinking, he says that that by through that competition, 
men have achieved higher eminence in virtually all things. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Everything. I mean, from their their physical function, the, their coordination to, to <laughs> their sense of imagination. Yeah. Um, and they, he was challenged on that, on that idea by women sure. of his day. And um, particularly people like Antoinette Brown Blackwell, who I write about in um, in the book, she wrote the first feminist critique of the theory of evolution. And um, she said, you know, you've given these, given us these tools and you've also used them in this, this is my words, not hers, but this very deeply uncurious way. Like you've just mm-hmm. carried this, you've created just a new path to the same old ideas about what a woman is. And she said, but we're going to, we're going to use this tool and we're going to create a, a new story. The problem was that women were systematically uh, kept out of the institutions of science that mm-hmm. they they weren't allowed um, the professional status or the education they needed to really publicly test those ideas and create other other theories. Sure, sure. So now um, you're right that a lot of people recognize this instinct, quote unquote, is probably not really truly accurate, but yet it just it's tenacious. It just kind of sticks with us. So. Mm-hmm. If religion and then maybe uh, the Darwinian type of science brought us here, why why do you think we st- we're still in this spot? Why haven't we yeah. to shed it? Well, there's an important bridge to that to to my answer for that question, which is the early psychologists um, in the early part of the 20th century who were specifically writing instinct theory. Um, so Darwin had had torn down the wall between humans and other animals, and scientists had already started to identify and write about instinct instincts in other species. And so now um, they started to look at human behavior and identify instincts. And instincts here being something that is um, unlearned, innate, mm-hmm. and consistent across the species. And they created a very long list of, of what um, what constitutes a human instinct from like, you know, fear of of strange men and 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 strange animals to like the instinct to climb a tree, um, and one of the, those instincts was um, became you know this idea of parental love, which was deemed strongest in women. William McDougall, in particular, wrote about how maternal instinct is um, so strong that it overcomes all other instincts, including fear itself. Wow. Um, but he also wrote that maternal instinct declines as a woman's education increases. Um, And it's important to note that William McDougall was uh, a racist and a eugenicist. And he, for him, maternal preserving the idea of maternal instinct was directly tied to the uh, preserving white supremacy Mm -hmm. um, at a time when, he was interested in and more white women having babies because there was this flood of immigrants to the country right. that was seen as a threat to the status of his race. Yeah, all these miscegenation laws and stuff like that. Yeah. And so this, um, even in his day, you know, a woman named, an early pioneering psychologist named Lita Hollingworth wrote <laughs> this scathing essay against him saying, um, I see what you're doing here. You know, like you're, you're trying to make this look easy and this is nothing more than meaning motherhood. You're trying to make motherhood look natural and easy. And this is nothing more than a cheap device for social control. And 
despite that, you know, it was carried forward by in science by, you know, Conrad Lorenz, and then written into attachment theory by John Bowlby, and, and then kind of reimagined, in other words, I think, generation by generation. Yeah. And something that I say in the book is that I really feel like maternal instinct is this classic case of disinformation, mm-hmm. because it feels true. You know, it's we yeah. we feel ourselves changed mm-hmm. by parenthood. We see it in other people. And this idea of maternal instinct is something that has been repeated over and over again until we we just sort of believe it reflexively. Right. Yeah. It's almost like propaganda. You know, I think um, uh, maybe a year ago or so, I interviewed Noam Chomsky, the linguist mm-hmm. and the political mm-hmm. dissident. Yeah, He's written a lot about propaganda, but um, and he talks about like the the slogan support our troops as being perfect propaganda because no one's really going to disagree with that but yet mm-hmm. it doesn't really mean anything yeah and um and so it takes your ideas away your eyes away from deeper issues like the policies exactly. that are sending our troops there yes. but no one's going to say i don't support the troops right? right you know so it's like kind of reminded me of that when i was going through that i, I mean a lot of the comments i've gotten in response to this work and and in particular in response to the new york times op-ed are like who would who would challenge motherhood and like the right. magic of motherhood? What like yeah, and yeah. and the comment that, that that woman made in the restaurant? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of you know this this idea that I, I must not be a mother because right. if I were one, then yeah. I would understand that this is real. Right. Yeah. And and in reality, the you know Lita Hollingworth wrote that that um, that essay I mentioned against William McDougall's thinking, and she actually made the comparison with. She said that the the same um, tools that you use to compel soldiers to go to war, you're using to compel women to have babies. Mm-hmm. And and that's like, she talked about art galleries that are hung full of images of Madonna and child and how, how we um, valorize women and, and, and the glory of their motherhood. And we also hide the hard parts. We hide the struggle at that time, you know, <laughs> maternal mortality was something like 60 times higher than it would be at, at the end of the century. And she was like, we don't talk about that. Right. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. So what are the impacts of this now? This is kind of like, okay, this is out there and this is happening, but so what, how does the, the fact that this maternal instinct notion is still so um, accepted in and drive so many different things, what kind of impacts does that have say on, on mothers specifically and on fathers, but maybe more generally too, just about our social programs and, and our views of community versus individuality and things like that? I think the impacts are huge today. <laughs> um, even if, even if we can sort of recognize that maybe this old idea of maternal instinct isn't real, we, it's, it's written, you know, influences all of our public policy around supporting young families, which, you know, is practically non-existent when you look at, at our peer nations and sure. in terms of, um, so, for example, you know, you you have a baby, you're pregnant, and you have lots and lots of medical appointments through your pregnancy, and then your baby is delivered, and your care basically falls off a cliff. Um, you have the standard is one appointment at at six weeks postpartum. Not everybody even has that, and and then that's it. <laughs> and 
why, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because we've embraced this idea that like, you've got it, like you've, you were made to do this and, and you've got what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, in other countries there, you know, in Germany, you get almost like daily visits from a public nurse or a midwife for the first couple of weeks and then regular visits for months after that. Um, and they are covered, you know, for free. And, um, and that is not, you know, Germany is kind of slightly an outlier, but it's much more closer to the norm in other, um, high income countries. And, um, you know, same, same, we could talk about parental leave, we could talk about the cost of maternity care, we could talk about postpartum depression, and, and how little is done to to pre- prevent it, or to, to really give people the care they need, if they're struggling with it. Um, we could talk about black maternal mortality, which is, you know, this collision of, of things of, of how um, under resourced hospitals that serve um, primarily people of color are, how ingrained racism is in our medical system, combined with this, the fact that this is a major neurobiological and physiological change that you go through that is more profound than just about any other you experience in your life. And it's one that requires a lot of support. And if people don't have that support, then things can go wrong. Yeah, I, I go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I I just think it, this is it's an idea that that allows us to do less for for mothers and young families, and it's also an idea that leaves so many of us, myself included, feeling really blindsided mm-hmm. by the realities of this transition to parenthood, which is really like a distinct developmental stage that is inherently grueling and distressing and requires a lot of support. Yeah. And that's a, that's a short-sighted view for people, you know, like the, if it's not just harming women, like it's also going to affect the rest of society and all the ways it trickles down. We're one of only countries in the world that doesn't have required like mandatory parental leave after you have a kid. Well, like, right that affects that kid's growing up and then affects what kind of job that kid's going to get and how mm-hmm. much money that kid's putting into social security later. I mean, it just mm-hmm. goes on mm-hmm. and on. It's not just one particular group. It's just not yeah. wise. <laughs> wise it is not. <laughs> and, and I guess I'll say uh, kind of related to that, you asked about fathers and others. And yeah. I, I think one really profound impact of, of the idea of maternal instinct is it creates this really limited view of, whose biology enables them to be really good caregivers. I mean, it's this, it's embedded in that idea of like, oh, you know, the father, there's only so much he can do when the baby's a newborn, so the baby just really wants the mother. It's not really until they're a toddler and you can start roughhousing with them that you get to be in, involved as a father. And that's not just not true. You can connect with your your baby from day one. Okay, so neuroscience and, and, is saying that. This current Yeah, and, and that. not only oh. is it, possible, but it's really kind of necessary that the neuroscience says that, you know, the two things that shape the parental brain are hormones and experience. And obviously the, that those, the kind of like physiological mechanisms of that are a little bit different if you have, if you are pregnant, mm-hmm. um, if you're the gestational parent, but if, if your father or another adoptive parent, you you can go through those same changes and, and experience really matters. You know, what matters is that you are deeply engaged in trying to read your child's needs 
and to meet them. And that that practice is what really over time shapes your brain. Okay, so lots of lots of impacts there still. I like how uh, how you put it. it gives us that excuse. So what overall before you fix it for us? You know, women always have had less power, you know, globally. I mean, just really forever, as far as we know from anthropological research. Is this maternal instinct like the cause of much of this inequality or the result of it? Is is this just another manifestation of ultimately women always being in a, a less powerful position? And this is general terms here. I know there's some exceptions, but general terms. Or is this really a driver of it? This is old anthropological. Oh, that's that, such an know. interesting question. I'm like, why has it always been there? This level, some level of inequality. Now, maybe oh. back in the Neolithic days, there was the hunter-gatherer. There was a little more yeah. like necessity required that you, you know. But from most of recorded history um, and then through today, women's ownership of property and in positions mm. of power and mm-hmm. all these things have, the, you know, it doesn't just randomly change every couple of generations. It's pretty traditional. And usually that kind of a stratified system that long would require some institutional things, some you know, yeah. cultural things and whatnot. So is this just another piece that keeps that going? I, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know that I completely have the expertise to answer that, except I will say, you know, I think that um, that inequality, even if it was present previously, really has been more deeply embedded through patriarchal, capitalism. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it is, I guess I would say like, even now, I, I think the people who are most angry with me about this idea are the ones who are most invested in um, keeping things how they are and maintaining um, the structures mm-hmm. of, of American, the American society in particular has like really invested a lot in the idea of the nuclear family and its role in the individualistic society that, that we have. And, yeah. um, we talk, you know, a lot about those things, but like at the heart of the idea of the n- nuclear family is that there's a woman who's managing the household and who is biologically equipped to do so and is doing the invisible or free labor to enable like a man to, to make money, mm-hmm. um, and to engage in, in our economy. And that's, those are the people who are most interested in preserving that are also the ones who, who I get the most blowback from. Yeah, that makes sense. So I don't, a, I don't know if that answers your question. No, but it I, does. I, I mean, it's not, it's not a real, uh, an answerable question per se, but, you know, I just wanted to hear your thoughts about it because I think mm-hmm. the differentiation between sex or gender I don't think it can be overstated, you know, the importance of it, even say social class differences. Well, there's still the the women are going to be different than the men doing different jobs and communities of color, you know, traditionally, whether they have money or they don't, there's still going to be different roles for men and women. Like, it just seems like it's always been this. Now there have been examples, say of like the, not, not of native societies and tribes where a lot more equality and things Mm -hmm. like that, you know, but Mm -hmm. matriarchal societies with with different sense of, of balance. Yeah. And and so it's, it's, that is a good segue because the last one I was going to ask you is, you know, how can we make changes to this system? And I was going to ask you specifically about capitalism because, you know, you brought, you brought up Spencer and a number of people that um, sociologists study, but also Marx and Engels, but particularly Frederick mm-hmm. Engels. So in the origin of family, private property and the state, he wrote that right after Marx died, but Marx contributed to it. He says the first division of labor is that between man and woman for child breeding. The first class antagonism, which appears in history, coincides with the development of the antagonism between man and woman in monogamous marriage and the first class oppression 
with that of the mm-hmm. male sex by the female. So for Engels, this is really kind of when true patriarchy takes off is because it coincides with capitalism because now we gotta can't have a community. We have to have individual families that I can pass my wealth down to and things like that. So can mm-hmm. we how do we make changes to this notion if it's so like rooted in or deep seated and connected to our economic model? <laughs> Just Gosh, a million, it's such a million a good dollar question. question. Now, now <laughs> right. that you're warmed up. Now that you're warmed up. Yeah. I mean, question. I I so a couple of things. I mean, obviously, I think that that an understanding of this the science of the parental brain is a good tool for getting there. Sure. And um, one thing that I like to talk about is compare a comparison with the teenage brain research. And that is that field is like a little bit farther ahead than the parental brain research, but it's been used in really interesting ways. You know, it's been given to, to change policies in schools around school start times and disciplinary practices. It's been used to like change how we talk about mental health issues, particularly around substance use and other risky behaviors. And it's really been given to teenagers and to their parents to say, like, this is what's going on in your brain. This is like how you can understand yourself better. And I do think that like a similar conversation could happen with the parental brain research. And, and then we can use it to say like, if this research is correct, you know, if, if with this is a distinct developmental stage of life, then what do we need to change in terms of our public policies? And what do we need to change in terms of our clinical care? And what do we need to change about how we talk to one another about what what parenthood is. And I think I do see that coming. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't expect that that is going to make the very broad systemic changes that you're you're getting at. But um, I am hopeful. Sometimes it's hard to be hopeful. hopeful. It's easy to be cynical. Yeah, I'm hopeful around a couple of things. One, you know, writing this book has really connected me to an amazing network of mostly women who are are doing the work of saying, you know, motherhood is, this is, this is not what we've been told it is and we need better support. So they're really pushing hard Mm -hmm. and making gains in small, small, but meaningful ways. I'm hopeful that, that fathers are becoming more engaged in caring and raising their children. Um, not only because of the example that sets and the way that changes cultural perceptions of fatherhood, also like biologically when you engage in neurobiologically when you engage in and maybe you've experienced this like you engage in direct care care of your babies your brain changes as a result you have a, a a better understanding of what is gained in that process and also what it costs mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um i hope that more men will take that that knowledge into their roles in public policy making and in business and elsewhere and and help to change those things and then lastly, I'll say, I do feel like some hope in how researchers and a lot of women in science are reevaluating some of the old tropes we have around biological roles of men and women, I'm thinking specifically about things like there's just the news a couple weeks ago about how um, maybe we've had this like hunter gatherer idea <laughs> of the division of labor and early humans, the earliest mm-hmm. humans wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're reevaluating that science and seeing um, there might be a really much more significant diversity of roles. And for those early humans, I write in the book a lot about the grandmother hypothesis or this idea that the nuclear family was like never the norm in, in among early humans that really we were um, an inherent part of our species is 
is that we raised children cooperatively, um, that we were only able to like proliferate um, because our our kids came closer together and we had support in raising them. Mm -hmm. Something that I like to say a lot is, you know, human mothers have always been really important and they've never been enough. Yeah, that's great. That, that, that's a really, you give me some hope with that answer. Um, the, um, idea of science, you know, the, the biological sciences as opposed to the social sciences. I think walking down the street, people tend to believe something that's scientific, quote unquote. And so mm-hmm. you're approaching it from that angle, not just as a journalist, but as somebody who does science. And I think that's useful. Mm-hmm. And then also, I, I think number of people that I've talked to in all these different fields, um, a lot of change seems like it's going to happen, but it would have to happen. But the people that could do it aren't the people that are going to do it. It's like the fox guarding the chicken coop. Mm-hmm. Like people aren't just going to give up this power, but mm-hmm. it all it comes down to kind of grassroots. And so, you know, your book and these um, people that are studying this now at a smaller level that are going to push up and push up. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully those people will be in positions yeah. like policy positions and yeah. things like that. Cause I think it's the good. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, that New York times story got such a back, uh, that op-ed got such a backlash. Mm-hmm. And just recently, like last month, it kind of resurfaced on Twitter among conservative mm-hmm. politicians and, um, was shared and viewed, you know, hundreds of thousands of times. And my, my inbox was full of really horrible comments from people. And, um, and I, you know, that's kind of hard to take, but also I, I've come to see that as like, I think they're afraid, like they're this, these ideas are changing and they're, and they're afraid. And so you're right. The people who need to do it aren't, or, or in the position of power to do it are, aren't the ones who are going to do it. And not motivated to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Were you, uh, yeah, that tells you you're doing something if you're getting that much reaction. If no yeah. one's reading that or paying attention, then it's like, shit. Exactly. Were you, were you, uh, caught off guard by that or did you kind of expect that you were going to get that kind of reaction when you did your work? I mean, just. Yeah. You know. I, I wondered. I had a feeling. I actually talked with my therapist about it a lot before mm-hmm. the book was launched. And so mm-hmm. I definitely was like prepared i wasn't prepared for the scale of it okay. um it was pretty it was it was a lot <laughs> yeah and this um, day, in this day and age too it's just you know disseminated so mm-hmm. and easily yeah. and so yeah i i use that example uh when we talk about the nature nurture you know stuff and sociology. Mm-hmm. of course the na- nurture is what we focus more on but how um you know, historically, like one of the main, if not the main sources of population control was infanticide, you know, in these mm-hmm. old, you know, and it was almost always done drowning and almost always done by the mother. Mm-hmm. And so um, we talk about it in my classes, we'll do little breakout groups about this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But like, even something, if it is natural nature, the nur- the nurture, the social part of, of mm-hmm. this impacts, you know, everything is kind of through a lens, you know, comes right. through the lens. So yeah. all of it still all of it still needs to be studied from the outside as yeah. well as, you know, from the inside. And it seems like you're kind of doing both. Yeah. <laughs> I think it just to circle back to Darwin, I mean, I I think there's a lot um in just like the the his framing of of sex as you know women are made to care for one another and men are are made to compete with one another and the ways that we have like really internalized that idea mm-hmm. and also um as a result prioritize competition for sure <laughs> yeah in this, in this country yeah in this country yeah. for sure i mean it's like uh, a honor to say you're exactly exactly so what would how would it look different different if we prioritized 
caregiving, caretaking cooperation um, by by women or by anyone. Cooperation, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we saw that as like essential to human nature, which I think the science really argues is is um, we we are we are designed to develop into cooperative caregivers. You've been listening to an interview with journalist and author Chelsea Conaboy. Since her book came out in 2022 and the corresponding op-ed in the New York Times, she has been flooded with media requests, so I'm extremely grateful for her carving out some time for me. I also really appreciate her suggestions on how to address this issue. The science is there. Let's use it to re-image our antiquated views that keep women chained to domestic labor. It can be done. In fact, in the early 1970s, Congress passed a bill providing for universal, federally subsidized child care, if you can believe that. But President Nixon vetoed it, stating that the bill would, quote, commit the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal approaches to child rearing over and against a family-centered approach, end quote. The translation for the veto rationale, as my guest points out, is simply this. The term family-centered really means women should stay home out of the paid workforce because it's their nature. It's past the time for us to take a much more holistic and inclusive view of raising children and remove this socially constructed yoke around mothers. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and if you did, please share it and like it in all the usual podcast spots. I'll put a link to more information about Chelsea Conaboy and her writing when I post the interview, so please take a minute to check out her work. Let me remind you that our social landscape is a listener-supported blog, so please consider making a one-time or recurring donation and become a member if you're not already. You just need to create a username and password, then you can comment after each post. If you have questions or comments, please email me, jr.sociallandscape.com. I'm J.R. Woodward. Thanks for listening. <laughs>